Support for CJSW's podcasts comes from listeners just like you. Visit cjsw.com slash donate and join thousands of people who help make independent campus and community radio a reality for the city of Calgary and beyond. CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcast in bloom. evening you are tuned into another episode of writer's block writer's block airs on the third wednesday of every month from 8 to 8 50 mountain time on cjsw 90.9 fm we feature inspiring interviews fiction readings and fun literary segments writer's block airs out of the university of calgary campus if you missed this episode live you can listen again on cjsw.com This episode of Writer's Block features interviews with Jim Jackson and Suzette Meyer. It also includes fiction by Renee Malosh, and a short segment by student volunteers Tammy and Serene. Without further ado, let's get started. Coming up first, we have Fixing Twilight. Welcome. Hi, today we are going to talk about a multi-million dollar franchise by the name of Twilight. Yeah, it's a classic. Tammy and I are going to discuss why it is a classic, why it sucks, and how we're going to fix it. We're going to be talking about book one today and film one because they kind of go hand in hand. Tammy, would you give us a little bit of a summary? So, it starts out with a 17-year-old girl named Bella Swan moving from phoenix to forks washington to live with her father she doesn't like that it's a small town and she does not like that it's raining all the time but she moved because she thought it would be good for her mom and her soon-to-be stepdad to have that time together so now she is in a new school where she learns about the famous colin family who are all pretty adopted and dating each other A classic combination. Of course. So the whole town's like obsessed with them, of course. Everybody, Mm -hmm. it's a small town, so you're not, of course, you're going to talk about the most interesting thing going on. And she um, finds out that she has a class with the youngest looking one, Edward. And they they do not get along, just like at the bad of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Edward seems to be disgusted with her, and Bella seems to be like, dude, what's your problem? From then, we they end up becoming besties or <laughs> boyfriend. The closest and, thing to besties. The closest <laughs> thing to best things as you can get. And they start dating. And um, they end up running into a bad pack of vampires together. And um, Edward ends up saving Bella from the bad vampires. And they go on living happily ever after and to make three, four more books. Fun. Very <laughs> fun. There's... Okay. Okay, already off to a great start. (laughs) I love that you said youngest looking because, yes, we need to talk about that age difference. Oh, my gosh. Okay, first, let's talk about casting. Right away, if I could change one person, it would be good old Taylor Lautner playing an indigenous person in this movie, playing Jacob. Um, yes, that was problematic. I'm sure it's not even that hard to find an indigenous person to play a role. Yeah, so basically, Jacob is supposed to be from the Quileute tribe, 
in North America. So it's crazy that, well, Stephanie Myers just sprinkles in all these unnecessary details. I don't know if it was her trying to be inclusive and trying to be more representative because then I guess good on her, but bad on her. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't her decision. Maybe it was a casting director. So let's blame the casting director. That's true, because how much control do you actually mm. give over when you're when you're an author that that's that book is becoming a movie. Mm-hmm. And the first movie was actually like really bad, like budget-wise and everything too. Yeah, because nobody knew them. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, yeah. And another casting thing. Tell me how much you hate Anna Kendrick. It's because of Twilight. <laughs> I don't know if I don't like her as a person, but because of Twilight, I do not like her face. I liked her in this. I thought the quirky, weird, annoying thing. I thought that was like classic of like this overly friendly, welcoming classmate. You know. She was kind of a beat word. <laughs> but she was like, was she unintentionally one? I don't know. That's the thing. Maybe that's why I can't like her till today. I don't know if that's natural or whether she was acting. <laughs> I think she was great. I, I like it. Okay, okay. Now let's talk about why it's an absolute classic. Um, enemies to lovers. Mm-hmm. We love this trope. The tension is beautiful. And I always say this, that if Bella was a stronger character, wouldn't she have gone, um, why do you, why are you acting so weird around me? Absolutely. What is your problem? And I think that inter- that confrontation would have also made Edward go, hmm, okay, this, mm, yeah. this chick's interesting. Okay, that kind of like goes into our why it sucks a little <laughs> category. But hey, that's true. I wish we had stronger characters because I feel like the premise, because the relationship itself is chill. Like I like their whole like, oh, I'm attracted to her blood, but I need to pretend like I hate her to resist myself or whatever. I think it's a good, it's a good, it's a good premise, but like it has no substance to it. We need more character for that premise to work. Um, another reason why it's a classic, I think it was one of the first paranormal hash or like um, supernatural romances that happened, and it took place shortly after Harry Potter. So everyone was sort of already high on that fantasy liking thing, and had a female lead. That's pretty cool for its time. That's true. I think um, there's also kind of a gap between kids who read Harry Potter and kids who read Twilight and kids who read both both of them. Mm, I think Harry Potter came out a little bit before it. So I think people who grew up with the first Harry Potter books kind of were in the right age range, tween, teen range for the Twilight books. So I think it might have worked really well. Go, time to go back in time and write a fan. Uh, <laughs> something better. Something better so you <laughs> You can come back with money. <laughs> yes. And okay, anything else that that you liked about it? Give us why it's a classic. Anything else? <laughs> or is that it? <laughs> I'm genuinely thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> the fact that we have to think this hard. <laughs> I can only think about my problems with it. Yeah. Okay, so let's start talking about the problems with it. They got vampire mythology wrong. <gasps> shimmery, shimmery vampires in the sun instead of them being affected in anyway they completely ruined that from the beginning that was my problem with it like i would grind my teeth anytime they mentioned that Mm. 
I, I feel like if they were going to do stuff like that, then they should have explained it. Like, oh, yeah, we actually just like we kind of scurved the representation of vampires in history because we wanted to protect our identity or something. Like, I feel like at least that would give me a little bit of to something to stand on. That's true, because Bala could have been like, oh, the looking in mirrors thing, is that true? So he'd be like, no, we just made that up so yeah, that we, were, we, we could work around. <laughs> yeah. So we could work around and be like, see, oh. I'm not a vampire. Yeah, 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 exactly. See, that could have worked so well. And you know the time when he was like um so what am i or whatever and she was like i know what you are you're a vampire like how does she know how does she know oh i this is probably going spoiler in i'm probably getting ahead of myself but if (laughs) bella had the obvious hobbies of a writer and she had that like creative few just Mm -hmm. always going i would have been able to put together that he was a vampire yes so what we should have had okay so tammy and i were thinking about how to fix it we're going to talk about this a little bit more in detail in just a little bit but bella being a writer would explain her absolute like romantic mindedness this is tammy's idea she was like oh what if like the overdramatization and everything, right? It would work really well because then we have an explainable reason for why Bella is so quick to jump to conclusions where he's a vampire or why she's so invested in the love story right away. Like, there's so many things that are unexplainable that could be explained if you actually gave her a character. <laughs> That's true. Plus, I, when I was 17 years old and I was writing, if I met a boy that I thought was cute and that I thought, okay, maybe there's something, <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I would have gone immediately to like, okay, this is going to be the new, this is going to be the ship mm-hmm. of the entire book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> See, I, I would totally, okay, I'd be into that because then I could be like, yeah, I can't really blame her for feeling this way because she was classified as a romantic writer type from the start. Then I would be like, okay, yeah, okay, makes sense. Let her be dumb. That's her character trait. <laughs> First of all, while we're talking about hobbies, the age difference. Oh my goodness, the age difference. The I like the way you put it. Uh, um, so technically, Bella is 17 years old and mm-hmm. he's he was born in the 1600s. That you mean Edward, right? Yeah, uh, Edward. He was born in the 1600s and mm-hmm. that's, I'm horrible at math, so somebody who's good at math should. He's like, very old. <laughs> very old. I, like I did some good math, math. there. <laughs> that's someone who knows how to do math. He's like very, he's like very old. Mm-hmm. So, but. So I, I understand the whole like especially if you want a love story like this you want to kind of have them living as a young person right the peter pan complex where they're stuck at that age for the rest of their life i'm willing to dive into that but obviously this is a being with so much knowledge trauma lives lived right he should be aware of his peter pan complex because of yeah. how long he's lived he's exactly. educated himself this isn't the first time he's been to mm-hmm. high school mm-hmm. which i already have huge problems <laughs> with but <laughs> but somebody like that should be self-aware yeah and i i think with if they're gonna make him be like stuck at 17 i think we should have seen more of his thinking behind it because i there is this in unmistakable like maturity that comes with having lived so many lives like he has Mm -hmm. while also being a child right so i i really want to see maybe we could have even had like a conversation between what's his name carlisle yeah carlisle and him like where there's like a very clear father-son distinction because there is a maturity difference for some reason like i I don't know how like i'm not smart man but i think (laughs) stephanie should have been (laughs) because i i wanted to see i would have liked to see Edward being 17. Because right now, he's just a creep who's way too old, stuck in a 17-year-old's body. That's true, because Carly was 
was would have was born and turned way before mm-hmm. Edward was yeah, even alive. Yeah, which is why he's old. He's practicing as a physician. Mm-hmm. You know, like those things make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we like, and I think it would have benefited us to see a father son relationship because then that dynamic we could have been like, oh, that's cute. You mm-hmm. know, like yeah. So that's one way to fix that. Another way we were thinking of was to age them up, right? So like college age Bella Edward, I feel like would have worked a lot better. That's true because when you're at college age you're a little bit more jaded than mm-hmm. you were in high school yeah i feel like yeah so even if if they had met and he was going oh she thought oh he's disgusted with me a college girl might have i don't know what would have i'm asking Serene and myself, (laughs) what would a college girl have done? We're college girls. What would we have done? done. Honestly, I'd have lost interest the moment he showed that he was disgusted with me. I'd be like, oh, this guy's racist or something. (laughs) I'm. Oh, Bella's right, the white, though. Yeah, Bella's white. (laughs) Like, I I don't know. I'm I'm kind of irrational, so I might have. Like been yelled into at that? Oh my god! No, 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 no! Oh. I would have yelled at him. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I after class, I would have like, yo, what's your problem? Like, what's? I would have listed mm. out his issues with me and asked him what your problem is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I don't think I'd have the guts for that because if this guy's some mysterious like vampire guy, like I'd just been like, okay, I'm, I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> I'm <laughs> dropping out of those classes. <laughs> no, I like to yell at random people I don't know. <laughs> Good. I'd have loved to see that. Yeah, I would have loved Bella with an actual character. Yell at this dude. Yeah, I yeah. would have loved that. So, so many fanfics came from it, right? The number one fa- worldwide favorite, number one Google answer is Fifty Shades of Grey. That's right. And when you read the original Twilight, you 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 see how it works because it works better in the books. Yeah, for sure. You can see Bella's submissive personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward less so, but like you can see how how it works. Okay, let's let's actually talk about like casting over here as well because, um. Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. I think they're pretty. They are both very pretty. Yes. And Robert Pattinson famously hates this franchise. And I think, personally, I think the performance works well because he hates it. Because (laughs) Edward also hates himself. So this works well because there's shame in everything he says. But he says it well. I can feel the pain. You're like a drug to me. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. (laughs) This guy's depressed. I get it. You can tell uh, you hate yourself too, don't you? exactly. And Kristen Stewart... I love her, lesbian queen. In this role, though, the writers uh, did her dirty. Like she could have done so much better. Like I was, I was bi. I knew I was bi from like middle <laughs> school. So while watching Twilight, I had this confusing feelings between um, for both of them that I did not understand until my college. <laughs> yes, it's not even Jacob or Edward. It's Edward or Bella. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think what could have worked really well was if they kind of gave them personalities, gave them more to work with. Because I think the actors, all the actors did a good job playing their roles. They were actually, they got really good actors for mm. how low budget it was starting yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and they all are still famous. That should tell you like how good they are actually at acting, right? So I'm not going to blame Christian Stewart. I'm going to blame the writers here. Um, yeah, and um, so how do we fix it? We age them up. We have strong leads. Give them hobbies. Let Bella have cursed them out in the beginning. Yes, yes. 
oh my gosh yeah so i think we just did we just fix twilight oh okay and don't forget to remove all that very very bad cultural representation for the quileute tribe <laughs> and it cannot be hard to find an indigenous person who's a good actor yeah, i am sure yeah exactly indigenous actors are out there and they're <laughs> looking for roles and instead you give it to freaking taylor lautner Y'all. Like no no hate Taylor but like go home. <laughs> Maybe a little hate Taylor. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's pretty much how we fix Twilight. I'd love to touch on Jasper by the way and how he's an ex-Confederate soldier, but we're go- we- he's not even in this movie that much. So, <laughs> we're going to save it for the next books and the next movies. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, okay. Um talk to you guys later. <laughs> You are tuned into another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. That was our fun segment with Serene and Tammy called Fixing Twilight. I, for one, definitely agree that novel could use some fixing. Hopefully in future episodes we get to hear them fix the sequels as well. Coming up next, we have an interview with Suzette Meyer on The Sleeping Car Porter. Stay tuned! And they lived happily ever after on CJSW. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. Today I'm speaking with Suzette Meyer, author of a new novel called The Sleeping Car Porter, which is her sixth novel. She is a professor in the English department at the University of Calgary. Welcome, Suzette Meyer, for uh, joining me today. Thank you. So the last novel I read of yours was Mona Sarah's uh, from 2011. And mm-hmm. so that was a contemporary novel set in a high school. So what made you decide to set your most recent novel in a more historical setting? Yeah, that's a really good question. Mona Sarah's came out in 2011. And I had another book that came out in 2017 called Dr. Edith Bain and the Hairs of Crowley Hall. And all of them, and actually all of my books up until the most recent one were set in the present. And so setting the sleeping car porter in the past was partly, I mean, there are many motivations for that, but it was partly a challenge to myself that I wanted to do something different because I don't want to be one of those writers who kind of writes the same book over and over again with the same kinds of characters, just with different names. And so it was partly personal challenge. It was also partly that I had become over the years really, really, really interested in sleeping car porter history. And so, you know, up until relatively recently, I didn't know that black sleeping car porters, so on luxury passenger trains, I had no idea that they were all primarily black men for a really, really, really long time up until, you know, later in the 20th century, actually. You know, the more I read about them, the more interested I became. And uh, what really got me was that I was not able to find any evidence of queer sleeping car porters. And so it just became a personal challenge to myself to, I'm going to write, you know, I'm going to write a historical fiction. I'm going to write a historical fiction about somebody about whom there is very little in terms of archival uh, traces or records. And so was just a great big challenge to myself that I eventually just fell deeply in love with. I had also, you know, I didn't realize until till quite late into the writing process, 
you know, I, uh, the novel is set in 1929 and I thought, I don't know anything about the twenties. I know nothing. I know nothing. I know nothing. And then, you know, as I was doing the research, I realized, of course I do. You know, when I was uh, younger, I loved reading books from the Harlem Renaissance. I loved reading the modernists you know, Virginia Woolf. I love the poetry of the early 20th century. So even though I thought I knew nothing about the era, it turned out that I had sort of absorbed all of this information about the era without actually realizing it for a really long time. There were books that I returned to again and again that I really, really loved. And so I do notice that there are more Black authors who are exploring this historical period. And so have you found inspiration from other writers working in this um this uh, time frame? I for sure found inspiration from writers who wrote in that time frame. So writers like Zora Neale Hurston, you know, she wrote a book called Their Eyes Were Watching God, which I think came out in the 1930s. I forget which year exactly. There was also, you know, there's Langston Hughes, who's a really important Harlem Renaissance poet who wrote this book of poetry called The Weary Blues in 1926. 1925, 1926, I believe, which has some gorgeous, gorgeous poetry. I love reading those books over and over again. And I'm currently teaching a Harlem Renaissance course, and it's all of these writers whom I just, I just adore. And I guess, um, what was it about the specific character that is Baxter? And talk about how you developed the character as well as writing for a general audience about Black and the queer story. So it took a long time for me to find my main character, um, my protagonist, Baxter, the sleeping car porter of the title. So part of my issue was that I spent such a long time doing historical research into the era, you know, doing all this research into sleeping car porters. And the problem was that, you know, I had boxes and boxes and stacks and stacks of paper, you know, that were researched, but I had no character. And part of my dilemma, too, was that I had found no evidence of any queer sleeping car porters, which I just did not believe. I was like, that that's utterly impossible. But I know that there were, you know, people didn't want to be caught. I mean, that was the whole point, um, because you could be thrown in jail, you could, you know, or worse. You certainly would lose your job, you know, later on if you get flogged. Just uh, terrible, terrible punishment for being queer. And so, you know, part of my issue was, so who is this guy? Where is this guy? And what I ended up doing was just a bit of time traveling, which is, you know, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but what I basically did was I imagined myself as a black man in the 1920s, you know, and what, what would I have been interested in? What would I have done? And I'm, and I'm a queer person. So, you know, I know, and I came of age, I can't came out in the, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And it was not an easy time. It was nothing compared to the 1920s, that's for sure. But, it, you know, it still wasn't as um, open as it maybe is today. And so it was me just sort of imagining myself back then. And, you know, because it took so long to figure out who is this guy. I'm not interested in him. He's just sort of like a historical figure who has no resonance for me. And so part of that as well was me thinking about, you know, what would I be reading if I was back then? And I really love, you know, I really love reading horror. I love, you know, I love reading weird fiction. And so I started investigating what, you know, what a horror fan would have been reading back then. And it's like, well, Dracula was around, you know, the Beatle, 
um, by Richard Marsh. Um, you know, Amazing Stories magazine, Weird Tales magazine. And so once I kind of tapped into that and kind of made him into a kind of horror nerd, a kind of speculative fiction sci-fi nerd, it was like, oh, okay, I know who this person is. I know what he wants. I know what he's interested in. And that, and that helped a lot. That made a huge difference. And so what is it about those weird tales that uh, drew people? Because it seemed like it's um, a specific to that time frame when there was this um, outpouring of pulp fiction sort of uh, publications. Yeah, I don't know that much about the history of um, those kinds of magazines from that time. But I do know that what, you know, and certainly for Baxter, you know, what those stories propose is a different reality, a different future. And quite often, especially within horror, it's about the revenge of the other. You know, it's the, you know, if you look like at pretty classical horror, it's about, you know, our fears coming to life. But what if, you know, what if you are the fear? So as a, you know, when you think about horror, it's always like the darkness, blackness is evil. But what if you are the black person? What if you are the horrific person? What, you know, those texts, give you what a book like Dracula gives you, you know, what even like a creature, from the movie, the creature from the Black Lagoon, what they give you is a minoritized person having their revenge. You know, it's like Candyman. Candyman is a man, I believe he was a slave who was, you know, had his hands chopped off. And so it's him coming back from the dead and saying, I'm going to get you. And how beautiful is that? I find it really, really, really appealing. So horror is kind of like, it's about subverting the status quo. It's about empowering minoritized, disenfranchised people. You know, you'll see, you know, female figures. I find female figures in horror, if they are the, you know, the ghost or whatever, I find that more terrifying than any sort of slasher movie because, you know, it takes a lot to make a woman express her anger. And if she does that back from the dead, you're in deep, deep trouble. And I guess uh, there's a fascinating connection between uh, the horror um, fiction that was around in the 20s uh, and the horror that is being produced by Black authors in more recent times. Yeah, oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, you know, contemporary horror by Black people, I'm thinking of like Kindred by Octavia Butler, where it's a character. Well, that's more speculative fiction, but you know, where she, it's a time travel book where the character travels back to the slavery past. If you look at, you know, what Jordan Peele is doing in the movies with uh, Get Out and Nope, I think he's just fantastic because he's tapping into, you know, there's a whole documentary called Horror Noir, um, and there's a book that's associated with it that talks about Black people in in horror and their roles and how they've been around a lot longer than you would imagine. It's, it's a very interesting, interesting history. And, and, you know, for the period that Baxter is dealing with. So I looked at a very specific issue of, I think it was weird tales. You know, those stories were about, there was a story called the chemical brain about a robot who turns on its maker and kills the maker. There's a story about a, you know, a professor absorbed by a jellyfish. You know, there's a lot of, there's also a lot of science. So that whole idea of science and that particular issue too, that was one of the first issues where um, H.P. Lovecraft published, you know, so it's, it's, um, it's a really interesting time because people are interested in science. They're interested in the horrific. They're trying to figure out what the horrific is. I mean, horror has been around for a long, long time, but 
those kinds of magazines are really cool. So back to the novel, The Sleeping Car Porter, how much time did you spend on trains to get a sense of the social interactions on trains? When I was a kid, we used to ride the train. We used to travel on the train. My whole family, we would travel on the train from Calgary to Vancouver for spring break. And we did that every year or we'd go to Tofino or wherever. So, you know, I've been riding trains ever since I was a kid and I just loved it. I mean, it was, you know, I had great associations because it was vacation time, but it was also, I loved the movement. I loved, you know, watching the landscape change from kind of, you know, wintry Calgary to very lush um, green BC. And then as research for this book, my partner and I rode a via rail passenger train from Winnipeg to Vancouver. And that was really interesting because I I had my eye on the porters um, because I was trying to figure out, you know, what's it like now? You know, what are the jobs that porters have to do that maybe haven't changed? You know, just the way they took care of us, like, you know, making down our berth and you know, the calls for meals, those kinds of things was, it was fascinating to me. And then I ended up, you know, in um, Cranbrook, there's this marvelous history museum where they have a perfectly preserved train from, uh, or luxury, uh, luxury cars from 1929 from the CP rail. And so I was able to walk through there and just kind of imagine the time and the, the beauty and the movement, but also the claustrophobia, right? Because it's this gorgeous, gorgeous, you know, train car, but you also don't get off very often. So it becomes more and more, you, you don't move very much. And I, and I had the sensation when we were traveling from Winnipeg to Vancouver, which is at first it was a novelty, but after a while it's like, okay, you know, you can only walk so far before you return to where you just left. All the passengers become sort of like a little village because you see the same people over and over again. And so in my book, there's a mudslide where the train has to stop in the Rocky Mountains. And so everybody's stuck with each other for days and days, and they start to go a little bit squirrely because they're stuck in this confined space. All right. I guess uh, that's the end of the interview. Anything else you'd like to say about the novel before we wrap up? No, I hope that people enjoy it. And um, yeah, all aboard. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thank you for your time, Suzette. And I hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong, and that was my interview with Suzette Meyer, author of a newly released novel, The Sleeping Car Porter from Coach House. She was named one of five finalists in the Scotiabank Giller Prize, with the winner to be announced on November 7th. She was also recently part of the WordFest lineup in Calgary at the start of October. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. That was Jenny Kwong interviewing Suzette Meyer on her new book, The Sleeping Car Porter. If you missed this interview live, you can listen again on CGSW.com. Coming up next, we have my interview with Jim Jackson on the Prairie Witch Anthology. Stay tuned! And they lived happily ever after on CJSW. Good evening, everybody. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Jim Jackson for CJSW Writer's Block on 90.9 FM. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Hey, good, Maddie. How are you? 
I'm doing wonderful. So I thought I'd bring you on the show today because I understand you have a really, really interesting short story anthology you want to chat with us about. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Coming uh, this month, Prairie Witch, uh, an anthology of psychological thriller short stories by female and women identifying authors from across the Canadian prairies, all set on the Canadian prairies, that kind of reclaim the term witch, right? To have it to be much more of, a, of an empowering thing rather than, than a slander or a slur or what we've seen historically a lot. When you reached out to me about this uh, collection, I was really interested in this because a lot of people don't know this, but for a while I worked in kind of a like metaphysical new age store. And so I worked in a place where we actually had a huge shelf of like really old school herbs. Like we had like star mm -hmm. anise and we had like basil, but we had all the metaphysical qualities at the bottom. Now I don't, I don't know a ton about that, but I thought it was very interesting because I've noticed lately, especially the past five or so years, there's been a huge trend of like reclaiming the idea of a witch or like more feminine spirituality or even like a more feminine identity that's kind of been disowned. Um, so I wanted to ask about this anthology. I've interviewed people that have done anthologies before. Was this kind of an anthology where all the writers got together and decided to all write on the same thing? Or was this something where you sent out a call for submissions and said, you know what, we want everyone on the prairies that identifies as a witch or understands this term or has something to say about this term to come to, to come to us was it more of a calling or did people just come together it was it was much more of a calling uh stacy condola who's the editor and who's the the brains behind the whole project i'm just i'm just the publisher <laughs> i'm just getting it out into the world uh yeah she approached me at a writers conference actually a few years ago with a with an idea uh prairie gothic so the same kind of idea um gothic psychological thrillers set on the Canadian prairies. She found it was a very under, under represented, yeah, yeah, underutilized uh, uh, scene, setting for gothic stories. So we put out uh, Prairie Gothic in October of 2020. And then this is kind of the follow up to that, the Prairie Witch. And, and, and I loved the first idea. I like Prairie Witch even, even more. So I said, yes, yes, let's do it. Uh, we put out a call for submissions and got so many more than we could possibly include in the book. There was a great turnout, but we, uh, we limit it to, to 13 for, you know, kind of, you know, oh, spooky, spooky number. Reasons, yeah. Anyway. yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we really got some really top-notch uh, writers, some people who are a little bit more established and some uh, who this is the, the first story they've ever sold. Yeah, that's always the fun part about anthologies too is you read an anthology and you flip the page and it's someone who's just a student and they just started and you flip the page again and it's someone who's published multiple novels and you're like mm -hmm. i recognize that name so that's that's what i love about uh, student journals and anthologies and things like this is you get the whole mix which is kind of the fun part i think so i wanted to delve a little bit more into this idea of the prairie witch so i know that the setting of the prairies as you mentioned the prairie gothic i i do know that gothic literature also had a bit of a trend recently as well because i think people are starting to realize that gothic doesn't have to be like a castle on a mountain on a mm -hmm. dark and stormy night you can have something that's really gothic and really kind of surreal like in your own backyard so what about what about the prairies kind of drew you about writing was it just the fact that we don't have enough kind of local literature focusing on that setting is it just the fact that the alberta the alberta setting especially these days feels kind of spooky like what what exactly because <laughs> I, I i do i do the drive very often now from you know from the mountains all the way to the prairies and it's kind of a strange shift it happens like really fast mm -hmm. and it's almost i find it almost a little jarring especially because there's just so much space and so much scale 
guy. So what what drew the writers to this idea? What drew you to this idea specifically? That that's very much it. That that, that wide openness is is not traditionally associated with gothic with either the castles or the uh, you know the heavy sweaty kind of southern gothic from out of the United States, right? But I I've always liked that that wide openness and found that can be can be re- well it's, it's quite psychologically bearing right it, it 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 just it makes you feel small and so that then if you add some kind of other creepy element to it uh, really amplifies that feeling and i think you know the one thing that the the prairies always have going for them is they have like the end, endless fields of wheat and they also have the scarecrows i think oh, scarecrows yeah. now that's something really gothic we got Absolutely. that going for us right nobody else has that <laughs> Add a little uh, hangover of uh, forest fire smoke and you've got a setting right there. Exactly, exactly. You get that nice um, orange tea light almost in the sky. Yeah, it's yeah. perfect. It's perfect. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, I was super excited to try and sneak you in for our October episode because this is the spooky season and I thought, oh, we got to do it now. Mm-hmm, definitely. <laughs> When it comes to the stories, um, I don't know how familiar you are. Unfortunately, I didn't get to actually like read through all of them because I didn't have the time, but I did kind of poke and peek at them. Tell me about some of the stories. Like, are some of them more like, do you have any like good witches in there versus bad witches? Do you have more like people just like talking about the identity there? Like what was kind of the theme or what did you, did you like the diversity of the different people and how they kind of presented? There were, there was, there is quite a lot of diversity in there. I mean, it's, it's uh, from, from characters who are full out, know their witches and just just have this power and and use it for for whatever means they have where they are on the prairies to people who uh who happen to to pick up a book on herbalism to go back to your your point there mm-hmm. and find that that it actually works and they can kind of control people around them and uh, and that so yeah it, it it's there isn't a, a straight out theme that it's it's about this it's about this kind of thing it's anything that that presents that kind of which idea in in a positive light we or Stacy I suppose included in I had nothing to do with the story selection that's that Fair that's enough. entirely her brainchild <laughs> yeah that makes sense that makes sense maybe I'll have to bugger just for like one or two quotes or something like that yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I find it I find it interesting because the the idea of the witch I mean of course there was the Harry Potter thing but that was more of a wizarding thing the idea of, of which I've been paying attention to the the kind of trends that I've noticed it's really been an, been on an uptick for the past five or six years now um I don't know as a publisher if you can speak to kind of like the female demographic and if there's if you've noticed that they've been looking for certain kind of stories or if you've noticed there's certain kind of ideas that they're really resonating with I figured I'd ask you as a publisher because I'm not sure but I've noticed just as a consumer and as someone who kind of pays attention I've noticed a lot more in the media and even in bookstores you see people selling you know tarot cards and people are getting more and more like it's almost like they've uh, there's been like a shift where people are back into like astrology and things like this so what as a publisher what do you make of that like in the literary scene like how do you kind of navigate that do you think like oh there's there's a female demographic that has a specific niche or a specific a specific perspective they're looking for and they want that to kind of be heard was that kind of the idea that you that you noticed or Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and, and I was keeping a close eye on things over the last couple of years because nobody knew what would, there, we knew there would be a shift coming out of the mm-hmm. pandemic of what people were, were looking for, but would they want something kind of light and, and fluffy and funny and, and, you know, uh, life affirming, or would they go into something that, uh, that, that brought out more, explore darker elements. And it seems to have been the latter. And I think a lot of it is that, that um, exploring of voices 
that have traditionally not had as much exposure, like uh, like for the in in this book, women, but uh, also of course BIPOC and uh, and 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 any any kind of voice that has been traditionally excluded from the thing, and that could play into why there's a metaphysical uptick as well, right? Because that is a way that that people can find an an inner power when when their voice has been traditionally excluded. For sure. And it's, it is interesting because it almost makes a different frame. Um, I pulled up a book that this, this kind of made me think of um, when I was studying in, uh, in English in university, I was kind of reading for like personal study. It's a book called We Were Witches by Ariel Gore. And it has a lot of uh, similar themes. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It was very <laughs> popular. Um, you probably recognize the cover. Um, I read the book and it's interesting because the book, what's fascinating about the book is it even makes the arguments that the traditional plot structure that kind of looks more like a mountain is a masculine form where like a more feminine plot structure is more like a spiral is what she kind of says mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or more of like a feminine shape almost which is spirals very connected with witchcraft of course too because you stir cauldrons yeah. and things like this and so i thought interesting. it was interesting because i almost wonder if part of the trend is you're not just looking for different content but like the way it is even written like even an anthology is a little different because it's, it's more of a mix and mingle versus one just just one story right um so i think that's very interesting because yeah that book i do remember reading it um kind of surprised that i actually remember the name of it but yeah it's called we were witches and how it's written is basically that the plot is is not this linear thing and the 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 novelist almost makes the argument that that kind of plot is even actually like more of a masculine or traditional Mm -hmm. plot which i thought was very interesting right Uh, especially when you consider the metaphysical elements because in you know in a lot of metaphysical like astrology but also just in a kind of new age kind of metaphysics and that perspective you see that there's no past or future and that's kind of how you can read the future everything's in the now and so you know how does that deconstruct a plot right does that kind of make sense and so absolutely it almost, so it's it's actually like it's not just that you're including almost witchcraft elements or metaphysical elements it's like the way that it's written if you're writing it from that perspective it's going to look different right like i've always been interested in choose your own adventure novels and i think this is wise because i'm so interested in like these kind of ideas that aren't always structures. yes yeah. right a different structure yeah so i find that very interesting i thought i'd just bring that up only because i was curious now i will say i regret to say unfortunately i didn't quite have enough time um to read all the stories or anything that even though i was posting um, I don't know how, many, how much you know about specific stories, because I could ask a couple questions about those or if there's one that stood out to you. <laughs> well, uh, with what you're talking about there, I, that's what I was looking for this one. Have a look at uh, Down by Iris Hill. That uh, it's it's not... It's not, you know, necessarily a, a, a complete blow up of the linear structure, but it does have this really cool technique that she uses in there about of of we're half of a conversation repeated, but the other half changes. And I, I I'm not going to do it justice, even in my uh, in, or certainly in my uh, description of it here. But uh, down was was one that I went, oh wow, great thing to do with structure. So for all the readers out there, we have a little recommendation. If you're interested in a non-linear story, we have Down by Iris Hill. And it is part of the anthology, so you should go check is. it out. <laughs> and I believe she is a uh, a first-time author in this one. Oh, that's so great. You know, yeah. I love. I actually do love first-time authors, though, because I find sometimes they're not too worried about being, quote-unquote, successful. They're just curious right. about being you know, like exploring, experimenting. And I find that sometimes even like better. Um, So I understand that you have a book launch party coming up. Did you want to tell the listeners about that at all? 
We do. This is the first book launch uh, I've done since pre-pandemic. So it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. We have, I think, 10 out of the 13 authors reading five-minute segments. It's on uh, October 27th in Calgary, if you're in the Calgary area. Uh, doors at 6.30. We start at 7, and it's at Sea Space King Edward, in the old King Edward School, uh, at the, the fourth floor in the Alexandra Writers' Center society room we'll have uh, we'll have music we'll have readings we're we're looking at having some tarot card readings so, oh awesome uh, yeah 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 <laughs> so that'll be a fun time the whole um sea space at the time is having their their halloween mixer so there are a lot of other events going on at the same time it'll it'll just be a spooky fun little thing you can find out more on uh, on the instagram for the book just uh, at prairie witch book Awesome. Well, that's cool. Um, I'm sure listeners will be interested in checking that out. That sounds like a very fun, spooky event, especially for October. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate chatting with you today about the anthology. Um, It's always great to have some like local anthologies on because Alberta has a very unique kind of demographic and a very, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, very unique gothic. So it's always good to get the word out there. Before we sign off here i wanted to also ask if there's any listeners curious about kind of your publishing and things like this are there is there like a future project that you guys are already thinking about doing or like a future call for short stories that you're thinking about doing for a next project well in terms of the uh, the prairie line i believe there is i'm not privy to the idea yet but stacy says she has she has one more that we can do uh, when so that that will be an open call for submissions and then in terms of other things uh we're open for submissions from time to time throughout the year so you can always check at uh, theprairiesoul.com slash press and that'll let you know what we're looking for at any given time we have uh in the spring a couple of poetry books coming out as well as uh how to tap into your inner creativity how to book Oh, I love books like that because you think you think you don't need them, but then you read them and you're like, hey, this is a good self-help book. This was like a good reminder. I, I actually needed this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight. We really appreciate having you on. I'll make sure that listeners go out and buy the anthology because that's perfect for spooky season. And hopefully someone can maybe do a little write up about it, a, re- a review about it or like a project about it for their classes. Absolutely. Love to hear it. Awesome. Thank you so much. For those who just tuned in, that was my interview with Jim Jackson on the Prairie Witch Anthology. As mentioned, the anthology is coming out this month to a local bookstore near you. Check out their Instagram to attend the fun local event he mentioned. That sounds like so much fun. I wish I was in Calgary for that. Coming up next, we will be featuring a reading from the collection by Renee Maloche. That reading will be closing out this episode for tonight. If you just tuned in, you have been listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. We featured a fun literary segment and two interviews. If you missed this full episode, you can always listen again on CGSW.com. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month in the evening. I wish everyone a happy Halloween and happy writing. Hi, I'm Renee Malosh, and this is an excerpt from my story for the Prairie Witch Anthology called Socia. I hope you like it. On account of my mom being a witch, I thought I'd better ask her what she thought about the thing that wasn't me showing up at my school. 
On my walk home, the air was crisp, laced with the bitter bright scent of overripe crab apples and the echo of coming snow. I shrugged my shoulders up to keep my ears warm. Why the thing that wasn't me was wearing a dress in this weather, I couldn't guess. I waved to Mr. Chen, who was out sweeping the sidewalk in front of Walk and Roll, the Chinese diner at the end of our block. He must not have seen me since he didn't wave back. When I walked through the back door into the kitchen, Mom was on the phone, so I went to Mona's room. There was something at school today that looked like me but wasn't, I said as I pushed open the door. What the hell, Mona shrieked, launching herself off the bed where she'd been texting and fussing with her makeup. Do you knock? Mona was 15 and really didn't care what I did as long as I stayed out of her room. Really, she didn't care for me in general and the feeling was mutual. Did you hear what I said? I demanded, increasing my volume. Yes, God, why do you have to be so freaking weird? Mona, my mother yelled from somewhere in the house, language. Her ears, she said, were fine-tuned to unsanctioned adolescent cussing. Christ, Mona muttered. I wanted to tell mom, I said, in case this is a witch thing, but she's on the phone. Mona rolled her eyes. When is she not on the phone? She cracked her door open a bit wider and beckoned me in, flopping back onto her bed. Mona wasn't a witch, at least not yet. Neither was I. Mom was a witch, kind of. Well, she didn't have a choice, really. When I was younger, she'd explained it like this. Some mommies have dark hair, and when they have a daughter, their daughter's hair is the same shade, whether the daughter wants it or not. She called our nuna a strega, like in those books, but mom wouldn't practice stregaria in our house. She kept candles of the saints around her bedroom and prayed on her bisnona's rosary every night, and on Sundays she went to the Catholic church across the street from the Lutheran church in town. But she still kept her libro del hombro in the bottom of her closet and left orange peels and cloves on our south-facing windowsills for prosperity and luck. She tried to grow basil in the back garden, but it shriveled in the first and second and third spring frosts. There aren't many of our kind left, she'd say. I'd overheard her once, talking to a friend from home about how the warmth and humidity of the lakes made it easier for magic to take hold. In the arid heat of the prairie summer, the deadening frost blanket of the frigid winter, it was difficult. It took strong resolve to keep the old ways alive. So what's this thing that isn't you? Mona asked, inking an even finer point on one end of her winged eyeliner. Kasha said she saw it. It looked like me, only brighter. Brighter? Like smarter? Mona asked, cocking her head. If there was one thing I was known for, it was being smart. I shook my head no. Brighter? Like sparkly? Weird, said Mona, starting on the liner over her other eye. I hopped up from the floor, I was never invited to sit on Mona's bed, and walked back through the door heading for my room. To my surprise, Mona spoke again, her words trailing me down the hall. Let me see if there's something in Mom's libro. I'll check it the next time she's at church.